0: Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. It's it's nice to be back in the studio. Uh, <laughs> got a couple of complaints about the audio quality of the last podcast. Hey, <laughs> we're either going to do podcasts on the road and they're going to be like not as good as the studio, or we're just not going to do them. So, I'm uh, I, I think you guys would rather have gotten the update, but we'll we'll just roll with it. Hey. um... What we're going to share with you today is a little thing that we did for our book launch team uh, when Confessions of a Recovering Engineer was in in the works. Uh, we asked for volunteers, people who wanted to be part of our book launch team. Help us get the message out. Help us get uh, you know the book launched in good order. Um, we had boy like um, hundred some people sign up for that. They got an advanced copy of the book. Uh, they read it over, gave us some feedback. They also helped us promote it when it came out. It was a, a really good, um, a, a really good strategy. A really great team of people. And one of the things that we did is we had, did a little get together with them, uh, answered their questions, presented some stuff, had a chat with them. And we're going to share that here today. There's some Q and A on the book. Just so you know, uh, we get some stats on how the book is doing. It's pretty opaque sometimes though with the publisher because they've got their own internal things and I get it on like a long delay. The one thing we do get for better or for worse is Amazon rating. Uh, Amazon is the, you know, the world's largest bookseller. Uh, the, <laughs> most of the copies of Confessions that have been sold go through Amazon. Uh, we may like that, we may not like that, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that they have like the the greatest you know, repository or rating system for books out there in terms of interest. And just want you all to know uh, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, the Strong Towns Approach to Transportation, has been number one in its category since it launched and has been doing really, really well. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, interesting to note uh, Strong Towns, a Bottom Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, the first book that uh, we released has been doing even better. So there was an initial point where confessions uh, outpaced uh, Strong Towns. And then uh, since then, Strong Towns has been an outpacing confessions. So there's a certain coattail effect that we see here, and that is exactly what we hoped would happen. Uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's bought the book, read the books, uh, shared them with others. Uh, we designed both of these books, and, and the one we're working on right now is going to be the same kind of thing. Uh, we design these uh to give people a really good intimate introduction to strongtown's thinking uh like with the p- blog posts like with uh you know everything that we put out the content is designed to be really accessible very shareable uh and and designed to help uh bring people from from one place to another this is not i'm going to say this in a, i I mean this in like a really good way uh, cause I, I think the stuff we write is very smart. I think it's very insightful, but it's not like deeply intellectual in an opaque kind of way, right? Like this is very accessible for everyone. I always say, I write for my dad. Uh, if my dad can get what I'm talking about, if my dad can understand it, uh, then, you know, I, I've, I've done something valuable and that's the way these books are set up too. So anyway, enjoy the uh enjoy the show uh we'll be back next week with something brand new take care
1: you're listening to the strong towns podcast
0: I don't know how you plan to start this john but mm-hmm. i i know th- this is a group of people who have been part of helping us launch this book and i i just got an email from the publisher today uh basically saying we are ecstatic this is going so well we're doing everything is going great on our end we're um really really happy and he's like i i hope things are going as well for you as they are for us and you know, our goal with these books is always to get this message in front of more and more people.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: this book launch in that sense has been a huge success. Um, I am uh, just getting off of two hours of podcast interviews on two different podcasts. Uh, I'm scheduled to do more today. Uh, we've, I, we've never done and had more demand for outreach and people wanting to chat about Strongtown's message and Strongtown's ideas. And that directly comes from the work that everybody did to, uh, to make this book a success. You, but especially all the people on this, uh, on this broadcast today. So I just wanna say thank you. Uh, the work is paying off and we're seeing, you know, a huge adoption of these ideas and a huge spread of these ideas. And you know that that was the goal all along, and I feel like at at at, se- at the seven week or eight week mark, wherever we're at, uh, we're a plusing it right now.
1: That's awesome. That's really yeah. great to hear. Yeah, the folks who are who are on this webinar with us, like these are members of the book launch team. These are people who pre order the book, and these are um, some of our Strong Towns members. These are the people who not only are help, have helped launch this book well out into the world, but are doing the the work of, of building strong towns there in their cities and so this is really um i don't want to say it's an elite group because that's not probably not language that we like no around,
0: i think that you know, i think that's a fair, revolution but this is like the uh this is like the green berets of the strong towns movement kind there of how we how go i, I like
1: that about. yeah that's yeah. great yeah so um lot, gosh folks are coming in from everywhere um uh but i just wanted. i just noticed at, on my screen jim elliott and Bend uh, Jim, I'm coming from Silverton, Oregon. Uh, so we're kind of neighbors and Chuck's going to be in your town. Uh, next event.
0: Yeah. yeah. I'm super yeah. psyched about it. Uh, and I think I'm coming via Silverton. So we'll have to see. Yep. Uh, John warned me that driving over the mountains is not easy. And I'm like, I'm from Minnesota. Like I, uh, I have no problem on snow. And he's like, yeah, snow and mountains are two different things. So
1: yeah, just carry chains. That's my, that's my only advice. Carry <laughs> Um, great. Well, let's go ahead and get this started. Um yeah, as I mentioned, these are like the folks on the call, these are the people who have really helped launch the book out into the world. And uh this was just a chance for um for people to ask questions. Um, as they've gone through the book, uh a number of questions have arisen for people. I've received some of the questions in advance. If you brought your questions with you and didn't send them to me, go ahead and just pop them into the QA um tab down below. Uh so it's for me, it's at the bottom of my screen. Hopefully it's there for you as well. Put your questions in there. We're going to try to get to these, uh to as many of these as possible. We're here, of course, to talk about this book, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, Transportation for a Strong Town. Uh, It's a handsome, handsome book. And uh yeah, so let's go ahead and get started. Chuck, you you kind of answered one of the questions that I was I I'm curious about. I know other people are too uh, and that's just how the book is faring. Obviously, we're hearing from the publisher that it's going really well. I was on Amazon uh, a couple of days ago and I saw that there were 47 reviews already. Yeah. That seemed to happen really fast. And yeah. uh, 43 of those were five-star reviews and the other four were four-star reviews. Um, so, and then of course, like you're out on the road talking to audiences for the first time and you know, live basically for a year and a half in a year and a half. So I'm curious, like, what's the, what kind of reception are you getting out there in the world to the book and to, and to the message?
0: I think you've summed it up in, in the positives. Uh, You know, when the publisher emailed me today, he said, you have 47 reviews that he said, that's incredible. Uh, Amazon, whether we like it or not Mm -hmm. is like this measuring stick. Yeah. And so if you look, you know, there's, he's like, your book right now is ranked like 20,000. And that might not seem like a lot, but there's millions of books on Amazon. And so like, this is an astounding number. Um, I think the, the one thing that to me, uh, has stood out amongst all the really positive things that have happened around this book is that the first book is actually done really well. So, mm-hmm. uh, what, what we've been trying to do with, um, you know, the, 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 Uh, everything that we're doing about getting this message out to people. Uh, The hope with the books was that they would build on themselves and there would be kind of a halo effect. And the reality is, is that a lot of times you'll look on Amazon, which is kind of the most immediate metric that you can have for how things are doing. And you'll see that the first book is actually currently outperforming the second book.
1: That's, the, so, that's incredible. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And so a lot of people are either getting the second book, reading it and going, I want to or they're saying, okay, now's the time that I need to go figure out what's going on with this strong town stuff. And so that that's to me like the greatest success is seeing people who are not only interested in this topic and this book, but then are like immersing themselves deeper into the into the dialogue and the conversation. Um, you know, we're we're also seeing I think out on the road, the thing that I've found the most um, reinvigorating for me is that even people who are deep into transportation policy and and really care about safe streets or, you know, what what have you, are saying, I learned things in this book about how to communicate ideas. I learned things that I didn't know. Um, This is really helpful for me, and I can give it to someone who is going to be A little bit more of a skeptic, and this will help move them somewhere else, and that's exactly what we are trying to create here.
1: Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's really fantastic. Uh, One of the questions that has come in, and it's it's related to the book. You talk about it in the book, um, and that is just an update on the lawsuit. Can you maybe explain uh, what that is and give us an update?
0: I can't remember what chapter I bring up the lawsuit. It's at the end. I wasn't planning to include it, and then it got so crazy that we we did. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so this is a, you know, the, the, the very Cliff Notes version of this is that uh, a, a, an engineer who doesn't like strong towns uh, filed a, a thing against me with the state licensing board uh, for a, a, a moment or for a, a, a period of time, my license had expired. I didn't do any engineering work or anything that required a license, but my bio still referenced me having a license. I hadn't updated my bio. I didn't realize my license was expired. The day I found out, I renewed it. I didn't think it was any big deal. Uh, The board apparently didn't think it was any big deal because they reissued my license and everything was fine. And then uh, about six weeks after that, I got a complaint that had been filed against me for claiming that I was a licensed engineer and uh, when my license was actually during that period when it was expired, um, I didn't think this would be a big deal. I answered the board's questions like I didn't do any engineering work. My bio was, what was was what it was, but you know I wasn't out like chasing after work, and I wasn't out you know competing with other people who were licensed to try to get jobs. I do writing and public speaking. Um, the board came back and wanted to censure me, fine me, call me a fraud. It, it was really horrible. And I thought it was a communication problem at first. You know, like I was saying something and, they was, and we just weren't talking to each other. Mm-hmm. So I ultimately wound up having to get an attorney and we, you know, sat down and had face-to-face dialogue. And then I started to realize, whoa, this has gone way crazy. And these, this group here is actually... Uh, very hostile to me and to Strong Towns and Strong Towns ideas you know, and, and, and are misusing this power and authority they've been given at this board to, uh, to you know, discredit us and come after me and come after Strong Towns. So we wound up filing a lawsuit in federal court. Uh, subsequent to that, the board filed an administrative action against me in state administrative court. So there's two like parallel actions going on right now um the federal court action is the one that i think is the most pressing Uh, it's the one that we filed they filed a motion to dismiss lawyers you know did filings on that there was a hearing uh, last week on that one and basically if the judge decides not to dismiss that case if that case goes forward as a civil rights case that the state is actually denying uh, my right to free speech um, and trying to stifle that free speech, uh, then the state administrative action will go away or will be suspended pending the outcome of the federal case. If the federal case is dismissed, and I I, I wanna make sure that people know there's there's good reasons why that would be. Uh, Federal courts, even if you have a legitimate case, will not just take any case. Um, and, and and it's, it's, there's a possibility and it's not an insignificant possibility that the federal courts will say the issues that we would concern ourselves with could be resolved at the state level. And so we won't intervene unless, you know, you go through this entire state process and it's still unresolved. If the federal court decides that, then we'll just be at the state action. Um, so basically right now we're waiting to simplify down. Are we going through federal or are we going through state? It's my hope that once that is decided, that that becomes a catalyst for uh, more than just the violation committee at the board getting involved, and we can actually resolve this thing in an amicable way, which is what should have been done all along.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: you know, the, there, is, there, there is no um, compelling interest the board has in regulating the words that we speak at Strong Towns. There's no compelling state interest in saying, I can't write this book or I can't speak. And I don't even think they're arguing that either. And So let's just deal with the uh, the technicality of me having a licensed engineer in my bio for a period of time when my license had expired. I'm happy to pay a fine. I said I would pay a fine. I just will not accept a ruling that I intentionally misled the public or committed fraud or, you know, all the other things that the the violation committee was trying to pile on with on this.
1: Can you connect the lawsuit thematically with the book? Because I think both, I mean, for me, the way I think about it, both deal with reforming the engineering profession. Now, that's not all that the book is about, far from it. It's yeah. not written, I would say, I don't read it even as being written primarily for engineers, but certainly that's a theme that runs through
0: it. Yeah, uh, here's how I will connect it. And, you know, it, it, obviously, th- this was an afterthought to the book. So the book has entire genesis, before we got to what is this insanity here. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a, a big part of the, the lawsuit and the, the claim that was made and, and, and this harassment that we've been subjected to as, a, as an organization is as a result of standing up and speaking out and challenging uh, the status quo power structures around transportation. And whenever you do that, whether it's you know in, in your line of work or, or this line of work that we do, uh, you will have people who don't like you. And, you know, you'll have kind of like traditional players who have traditional power structures. A big part of this book is designed to shift power away from top-down structures that really run through licensed professionals to more bottom-up structures that include licensed professionals and have them as part, but really shift power to neighborhoods elected local elected officials, uh, people who can, you know, make reasonable decisions about transportation systems at the local level. There's a lot of licensed people who don't like that. And I would expect that we would see even more of this kind of thing as we continue to have our ideas debated and discussed and, and, and attacked and embraced to some degree uh, in the coming years.
1: hmm well, to go along with that, one of the things that's exciting for me as I was reading through the questions that came in in advance and then are now coming in uh, via the, the Q&A uh, chat box um, is how specific some of the questions are. These are obviously folks who are reading the book and are, are you know, they either are going to or already have been engaged in the process of putting these, uh, these ideas, these principles into action in their town. And so a number of the questions that i want to relay to you get really into the specifics which like this is the on the ground specifics which i'm, I'm excited
0: wow. i'm excited because for the most part you're i've been dealing with journalists who mm-hmm. if anything they will skim the book but then they ask like really dumb questions so i'm i'm kind of excited for like a more enlightened set of questions to talk <laughs> about
1: <laughs> well let's start with uh, let's start with jacob's enlightened question which came in on the q and a box uh, Jacob says that traffic calming lowers speeds by making driving uncomfortable. How can we successfully advocate for something that will make most people's daily life, i.e., as drivers, <laughs> less comfortable and less convenient? It's um, hard to see politicians
0: going for something so unpopular. That's a uh, that's a great insight. Now let's let's take that to the next step. It makes speeding uncomfortable. It doesn't mm. make driving uncomfortable. So you know, to me. Uh, What you're doing is you're saying, uh, you know, why would we create a system or or people will be resistant to the system where driving at a safe speed is comfortable to them, but driving at an unsafe speed is uncomfortable to them. And and I I guess I would say that I I think humans are capable of doing that without getting upset. I think humans are capable. I mean, let's let's get this out of the way, I'm probably going to do bad analogies because I kind of do them on the fly, (laughs) but like nobody wears like horribly uncomfortable clothes, right? Like you get up in the morning and your body gives you feedback. Like, I don't, I don't want to wear that uncomfortable shirt or whatever that is. And so you don't, and I think getting in your car and driving at speeds that are uncomfortable, people are just naturally not going to do that. They will find an equilibrium in their brain and in their actions That allows them to experience comfort as opposed to discomfort. And I I think that's, you know, to me, the deep insight here is not that we're going to put people who are already primed to be angry and mad and, uh, you know, the societal tension that we have right now, and we're going to put them out in the street and just like, you know, poke them with a stick and say, be uncomfortable. Damn it. You know, we're actually going to say, Here's a situation that's going to create you a lot of tension, but you can find comfort and equilibrium it's driving slow mm-hmm. i you know what 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 insights on human behavior suggest is that people will then drive slow
1: mm-hmm.
0: Does that make sense, John i mean i'm
1: yeah, but I think I also think it's a good lead into another question that's sort of along the same lines. It's maybe not about convincing politicians, but like how do we communicate that um to other people in our community, so one of the questions we came in uh, that came in was uh, the example of a church that was kind of standing in the way of of road diet. Do you have any tips on how we can, um, <laughs> I, on how we could just like commute, how we as advocates can communicate the benefits of reforming our transportation uh, to to people who might be initially, you know, not in favor, if not outright antagonistic.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I. I didn't bring this story into the book, but I had you know this exact situation where the priest at my church was against the bike lanes being proposed out in front of my church. And the, the thing was- Did you was send a... in this question, Chuck? No, <laughs> the, the thing was it was a bad project at the hmm. wrong time. T- to me, the, the answer to that question is that if we find ourselves having to communicate to people why something they don't want to do is good for them. We've, we've not done it. We failed. We've not done it correctly. The reality is like the project that happened at my church, um, the city decided, you know, we're going to build bike lanes. And so the next project they did, the next big top-down renovation project they did, they included bike lanes. And they went out and just kind of without thought indiscriminately just put bike lanes down and they took out the entire or they were planning to take out the entire area where, um, you know, people park for the, the, the wedding party parks, the, uh, the funeral procession, the hearse sits outside the front of the church, you know, basically like church prime real estate for uh, the business of the church and then it became this thing of like the priest versus the city and of course all my parishioners are there you know you can do this like shaking their fists and i'm like this is a really bad situation and by the way this was on the outskirts of town where where if anybody bikes it is very very few so we picked a big fight in a place with very little upside Hmm. to me What you would like is you would like the conversation to be happening between the priest and the parishioners, between the church and the people who are there, and having the people who are in the church saying, We would benefit from this. This would be wonderful. And the way you get to that is not by making it uh, a city project, um, you know, where we're delivering this, uh, you know, commodity, a a bike lane or a, a road diet or what have you but a neighborhood project where people are building, co-creating with, with, with the city government, but co-creating a neighborhood. And, and this gets to the street design teams that I talked about. You know, I, I said, this book is about shifting power. And I literally mean that, it's about shifting power. And the street design teams are designed to do that. They're designed to say, the engineering part of this is one part of this, but it's a modest part of it. The greater part of this is, what are we trying to accomplish in this neighborhood with this street and if we can have that conversation there will be many times where we don't like where it ends up i'm not suggesting street design teams will be flawless and will always come up with great designs and will always be wonderful but the idea is that the street design teams creates an iterative process where we can start to deal with people's issues on the ground and when we do that um i i think we can refocus our conversation around the human experience in the place, as opposed to the kind of imposition of values on that place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'll take my chances with the church any day when we do that, right? Like I, like I, you know, give me that kind of dialogue where we're saying, what are we trying to accomplish in this neighborhood with the people who are here to make their lives better? Um, you know, I, 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 I like my odds in that process.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Just a reminder, folks. Um, go ahead and um, put your questions into the the Q and A box there. Um, I have others that that folks have uh, that people have sent in, but I want to make sure that we get to your question as well. Uh, so me, go ahead and put it there. Oh, go ahead, Chuck.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to I, let me let me that last question. Mm-hmm. L- let me summarize the answer in like a, a, a blurb format. Mm-hmm. Traffic calming. If it's the city bringing it to the neighborhood, really difficult. If it's the neighborhood bringing it to the city, I think really successful. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of a street design team or the idea of focusing the street design approach, making it bottom up, is to actually foster the people bringing this to the city.
1: Which means that the conversation needs to be happening at the neighborhood level, like to even to... you know, pre, predating that.
0: The, the most controversial thing that I've seen with this book or the, the place where I've gotten the most pushback uh, is on this idea that a non-technical person should run a street design team. Hmm. And I actually describe it as, as kind of like a social worker should run the street design team. And, and and people are really, you know, professionals are really offended by that. They're like, how could that possibly be? And I'm, because the questions that we're asking at that level are very human questions. And we're really centering on the experience of humans in that neighborhood. Um, and, and, and the other things that are brought in have to be in service of that. And so the idea that you would start with the engineer and the technical specs of a street is like the wrong starting place.
1: Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That's real good. Um, Sarah Roy asks a question. Uh, Sarah says, I understand from the confessions videos that the MUTCD, and that's the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, that the MUTCD clearly states that an engineer can use their discretion regarding road design. I mentioned this to our town's engineer, and he claims that he can't use his discretion because our state DOT has adopted the MUTCD as law. Is this a real thing? (laughs) Also, I've been told that some engineers hesitancy to use their own discretion Lies in that if the DOT or other regulatory body disagrees with their choice, they can threaten to take away that engineer's license. Can you speak to this? How likely is such a thing to happen?
0: I, I feel like there's two, so there's two parts of this, um, and I'm, I'm actually bringing up the MUTCD right now. Uh, so maybe i can share my screen as we go and just show you i mean it says this like very early on like these are guidelines you're supposed to use your discretion if they adopted it as law i I think that maybe we're misunderstanding what law is um you know law in in this case is a set of of guidelines not like thou shalt not kill or you know like it's it's a very you know it's a it's a very different set of uh of understandings i don't know any place that has adopted it as law um but it is adopted as like um you know a controlling set of standards in a sense like here's the here's the guidelines that you will use and here's you know the kind of like the general way you'll go about doing this stuff um I'm scrolling through here right now, and I'm not like, I, I, can, I can send it to, uh, I'm sure I can find this if I spend like five minutes. I'm not going to waste our time. <laughs> it, it says right here in, in, in it that these are guidelines, you have discretion. And if they've adopted the, the mut CD on, on uh, you know, as, you know, quote unquote law, that doesn't take away someone's discretion to do it. So just from a technical case, that is wrong. There's a wrong interpretation of what's been done.
1: Not by Sarah, but by the engineer, by the engineer. Right. mm -hmm. So,
0: but let's deal with this other part, which I think is, is, is a little more nuanced and a little, a a little more interesting. And that is this idea of like, we have to follow this or I'll have liability. I could get my license taken away or things like that. Um, We don't do any consulting at Strong Towns, but I have, and I'm, I'm involved in one right now. I have uh, taken my time, my own personal time, and been an expert witness in a number of cases. And I've got one I'm meeting with the people on, on Thursday where I'm doing the same thing, uh, to push back on this issue of liability. Um, you will be liable as a professional engineer. If you do things without exercising care, In other words, if you are negligent in some way, uh, or if you, um, you know, are aware of problems and issues and you choose intentionally to ignore them. Uh, Now, courts are weird, courts do strange things, um, but cities are given immense amount of latitude to make decisions on things. Uh, If a city decides we don't have the money to fix every road. We're only going to fix this road over here. And then someone dies on this road over here because it wasn't fixed. The city is not liable for that because the city made a decision based on the resources they have to prioritize this road over that road. And you might disagree with that decision and it might have bad consequences, but it's not like the city was negligent. The city made a conscious decision. Any lawyer will tell you Any lawyer advising a city is going to tell you, and I've been in many, many, many of these meetings where I've asked this exact question about traffic calming and, and other, you know, traffic related things. If you make a decision and document why you did something, your, your, your chance of liability is like nothing. It's, it's nothing. Um, The case that I'm involved in right now is one where there's an elementary school, a strode, and then a trail on the other side. And the trail actually comes and and kind of uh, ends at the opposite of the school. And there's, you know, four lanes of fast moving traffic and then the school and it's an elementary school. And the kids were supposed to come to this point and then go all the way down the trail to a quarter mile to the signal, wait, cross, come all the way back in, you know, February in Minnesota. Um, and instead they were just walking straight across this was brought to the engineer's attention many times this was brought to their attention by the school district and the engineer came back and said there was nothing i could do this is a state standard i couldn't do anything and the reality is there's all kinds of things that could have been done but the engineer chose not to and i am working with the family in this case uh, to bring a case of negligence against the engineer Mm -hmm. basically to change the idea that liability is varying from the standards to what it really is in law, which is being negligent of you know, your responsibility. Something is obviously a danger. It's been reported as a danger. It's very clear you're aware of it and you consciously choose to do nothing that is negligence. Mm. Um, so no engineer is gonna get their... Li- I've, I, because of this lawsuit, I've spent an inordinate amount of time reading cases Uh, that have gone before the engineering board, there are really heinous things that engineers have done and they don't lose their license. No one's going to lose their license for uh, making a discretionary call on a design where they document the reasons why and their concerns over safety and then say, this is why I believe this would be in the best interest of the public and the best interest of safety. No one's even going to have action brought against them, let alone lose their license. So to me, what this is, and I write about this in in the book on reform of the profession, uh, the liability thing is more often than not an assertion of power. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a book of standards. I'm going to follow those standards. You don't know those standards. You don't have them. You don't understand them. You don't have access to them. I am essentially the gatekeeper here. And I will do as I please and not really be accountable. And I find that to be kind of the worst abuse of power that engineers routinely do. Yeah.
1: Is that the case that you're describing involving the family and the the engineer, Are, are cases, negligence cases like that, common, or is this relatively uncommon?
0: Um well, let me put it this way. I, I think that they're common, but I think that um, to have, okay, so this is the fourth one that I've done. I did a couple out in Oregon actually, hmm. and those were both settled before they got anywhere. The, the I, I think what is uncommon is to have a, a, a jury verdict, right? Because usually these get to a certain point and then there's a lot at stake and people settle them and they go away. And before I get involved with them, I ask like, are we going to a jury verdict? Because I, I want, you know, there've been a handful of those in the last few years. Um, I want a lot more of those. And I want the, I want the language, I, I want a bunch of big jury verdicts to start uh, affecting insurance companies who are writing policies for cities, and then having those insurance companies turn around to city councils and people who are making decisions saying, best practices say you're not protected by just following the manual, but actually best practices say you have to use your discretion here. That's mm-hmm. what it is, And, and it, you and I can say it and, and I can write it in a book, but until they start losing in court, which they've not done a lot of, because they tend to settle, um, until they start losing in court and having their own insurance people tell them to do this differently, I think they will be able to sit behind this wall of liability protection mm. or, or perceived, you know, liability protection. Yeah, cool. Thanks. That's, that was really
1: interesting. I had not heard about this, the case that you were involved with or even of other cases like it.
0: Let me, um, can I share my screen here for a sec?
1: I think so, yeah. So
0: this is actually the manual uniform traffic control devices. This is a publicly available document. So it's not like you have to pay for it to get it. Here's section 1A.09, engineering study and engineering judgment. Um, (laughs) This manual describes the application of traffic control devices, but shall not be a legal requirement for their installation. Um, And it goes on to describe, you know, these engineering judgments should be exercised in the selection application of traffic control devices. As well as in the location and design of roads and streets, that devices complement. It's this is this kind of language is in every single, you know, manual that is held up as like a a bible of sorts. You know, like we can't we can't vary from this. This is what the standard is. No, you're supposed to exercise, uh, you know, your judgment as an engineer. Do these standards apply in rote format here? Or is there something that would quiet, you know, prompt you to say, this is a unique situation. This is a little bit different. This is not a standard rote approach. I need to uh, think for myself here, or we need to exercise some level of discretion that is in all of these. Mm. Does that make, do you see that? Does that make sense?
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great, great, great question, Sarah. Great question. Yeah, great question. Um, so a couple of folks have asked for, um, uh, for examples of successful city initiatives um, that are positively impacting road design, uh, uh, and you already you, you talked about how those really in, those really should be welling up from within the neighborhood. But I'm yeah. wondering, and and I want to talk specifically about Strodes later. But have you are there other things that you've seen as you travel uh, the U.S. and Canada? Or things, uh, projects you've heard about that we should be pointing to as successful street redesign initiatives that other folks can learn from.
0: Um, I I, I wish that I could say like at scale there's there's a bunch of great ones. I, I know that you know you can pick up Jeanette Sadek Khan's uh, book Street Fight, and it's basically it's behind like- you on the shelf. Uh, it is behind me on the shelf isn't it it. it's a it's a fantastic book that goes through uh you know her kind of struggles in new york city and how you know they would go out and using i don't think she uses these words but i will use a a, you know a tactical urbanism approach to go out and try innovative designs and and test them out and see how they work and get public buy-in and then make things permanent and if you go to new york um, you will see starting in Times Square and walking all the way down Broadway, you'll you'll see iterations of this going on, uh, where they've you know rolled this out. I think one of the hard things is that New York is the only city like it in North America. I mean, it's it's a European esque city. It's the only one of that scale, so it's it's hard to take the High Line and transfer it to Brainerd, Minnesota. I mean, it just doesn't. <laughs> So I think the question, you know, to me would be how do we do this in real places across America, real, like non-New York places? I feel like the best ones doing this right now today, I would go pick up the Tactical Urbanism book and I would follow Mike Leiden and Anthony Garcia uh, with Street Plans Collaborative and I would follow the Better Block Project that they're posting, you know, a couple times a month, different projects they're doing around the country where they're taking They're cues from humans in a place and then trying out things. And I I, I say this in my public presentations, you know, what you're asking is a question of what can we do with cones and straw bales and duct tape and paint? And there's a certain group of people that look at you that like, that's bizarre. Like, why would you do that? And the answer is because you can learn a lot of stuff with these temporary kind of interventions. You can go out and you can try things out, and you can see how traffic responds, and you can see how humans respond, and you can get a sense of, is this place the right place for this kind of action right now, today? We see cities formally dabbling in this, and you can go to a place like Fayetteville, or even Seattle, Um, you know, LA has created some, some really interesting local block standards that people can adopt and do, but to me, the most exciting ones are the ones where they've given the residents in a sense, the discretion to go out and try some of this. Um, uh, you know, I would point to Duluth as being a place here in Minnesota. That's done a little bit of that. Uh, but you can go to a place like Memphis or a place like Shreveport or even Detroit, where sometimes it's the, uh, it's the government saying, we'll we be your partner with this, but sometimes it's the government being like, wow, this is happening. Maybe we should help out or pay attention or see what we can learn from this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that uh, the, the, the palette is really bare and we can do a lot. I mean, my hope is that the next decade gives us thousands of examples as opposed to the, the the dozens of examples that we see today
1: I, uh, I I know from talking with folks that there are people who are interested in doing a tactical urbanism redesign on their street to to slow cars uh, we've talked about doing one just literally right outside my office, but one of the concerns that I've heard is is that illegal like if i if I change the design of the street <laughs> with the intention of slowing the cars down and something bad happens, like am I then liable for that, you know, that that tragedy.
0: Yeah. Um, so this is where having an engineering license does change things a little bit. Because uh I I have a hard time recommending to people uh to just go out and like randomly try stuff. I mean mm-hmm. I, I do think that the best of these projects are ones that are done as part of a street design team where there are technical professionals and non-technical professionals involved. Um, That being said, I have found myself applauding uh, the overnight tactical, uh, they call themselves like guerrilla fighters who go out and do this stuff overnight. Um, I think the the most effective ones of, of, of those are not actually doing intellectual exercises. Like if we use cones and we narrow the lanes and we do this, will it have this effect? there are people who are using that effort to draw attention to a problem. Um, Seattle for a while had people who would go out overnight and put up temporary bollards. Uh, In New York, they had neighborhood groups that would go paint bike lanes overnight. And what they were doing is they were um, pointing out a problem and creating momentum for it to change as kind of a almost a protest activity. I think if you look at it that way, your strategies would be a little bit different than if, say, I were going out with a street design team trying to understand the concerns, the way people were using this neighborhood, the struggles, trying to co-create space with them uh, as, a, as a servant, you know, as an, as an engineer with some technical expertise, trying to meld that with their neighborhood expertise to create a good design that we could iterate on. Mm-hmm. So there's a little, I think, a different tactic, right, John?
1: Yeah, uh, th- yeah, that makes sense. And uh, Just about like regarding my neighborhood, one of my neighbors worked for literally years to get speed limit signs put up um, because people go too. F- our house is right on the edge of the country, like between like right the border between the town and the country. People are just going too fast. Yeah, our one of our neighbors worked for years to try to get the city to put speed limit signs in here. Like, the relationship soured now that and finally signs were put up a few months ago and it's all anecdotal but man it seems like people are actually going faster as a result it seems like people i don't know it almost like in protest of the speed limit signs but there's nothing about the design of the street that changed at all that would indicate that they should be going slower
0: yeah that's uh, to me i feel like you know the engineering profession has a multitude of great insights that they selectively apply. And this is why I started the book with the chapter about the underlying value system. Because engineers recognize that humans, that driving is a system one activity. It's a, you know, to go to to Daniel Kahneman and his insights on cognitive psychology, system one is the automatic system. Uh, It's the one where I ask you what one plus one is and you say two without having to do any mental cognition driving is a system one activity. If it, if it weren't, if it were a system two activity, one that took your active focus where you push everything else out of your brain and focus on driving, uh, people would exhaust themselves very quickly. Like you, you can't sustain that level of, of mental uh, acuity for that long. And so engineers have recognized that because driving is a system one activity, people will drive the speed they feel comfortable driving regardless of what other signage is in place signage is like the most ineffective way to get humans to do things, particularly people who drive the same stretch over and over and over. um, The signs will mean very little to them. And so it's not surprising to me that you have anecdotally at at the very least not noticed people driving slower and that there may subliminally be things being signaled to the drivers to drive faster here. Uh, That doesn't surprise me at all because speed limit signs themselves are very ineffective ways to change people's behavior behind the wheel. And that, that makes me sad because I watch people like your neighbor invest lots of time and energy mm-hmm. into changing, you know, quote unquote, the law, you know, when it comes to what speed people can drive in a place and then be eternally frustrated when it has no no real effect.
1: Yep. And it's not just me, that neighbor is very frustrated.
0: And yeah. it feels in fact, it feels
1: personal. To her, after working for for so long,
0: and I'm 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 sorry for that person. Um, you know, I I I I grant their frustration. I feel like they um, don't have a complete understanding of the problem, mm. but I feel like engineers do. It, the problem is that the engineer response would be to raise the speed limit because people are driving fast, when it actually should be to redesign the section so that people are skewed. To slow down, and that's that's just not in the engineering toolbox today. Um, somebody asked about some for some
1: practical strategies on converting a strode. Um, any any practical tips there, specific specifically with strode conversion? Well,
0: it depends on what you want to do with your strode. If you want it to become a street or a road. Mm-hmm. Um, in the confessions presentation I've been giving a, a, around the country, I have this one slide that's like if you wanna, you know, if you want to go from a, a strode to a street or a strode to a road is very easy. And it is like really, really easy from a technical standpoint. The 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 problem is always cultural. It's always a, 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 a conversation between people that makes this difficult. So if you want to go from strode to street, you slow traffic. You prioritize humans in that space over through traffic. And then you build stuff because the streets about building wealth. And so those things are all like very simple to say, but like, how do you slow traffic? Well, you do the opposite of forgiving design. You create edge friction. You create, you know, you make the complexity of the place overt and apparent to the driver. So the driver is induced to slow down in order to retain. Like we said at that very first question, retain a level of comfort. So in order to feel comfortable in a complex place, people will drive slow, and so you want to add complexity in. Well, uh, you know uh, that 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 is something that we can do through the design process if we had that, you know that 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 value set. Going along with that, prioritizing people uh, would be, you know, in, in a street would be things like changing your signal priority. I mean, I my my daughter. Um, hates walking to school and she gets really mad because she has to sit at the light for like 90 seconds while there's no cars anywhere and you know you press the button and you sit and wait and it cycles through and because it's you know quote unquote rush hour you know the 10 minutes of day but they'll set the thing for two hours because who knows why so you'll be sitting there there's no cars anywhere and she's got to wait for the whole thing to cycle through. And, you know, January, February, this is a very uncomfortable thing in Minnesota. particularly for a teenage girl who just wants to get to school. Um, you can switch all these things. We can prioritize the, the human crossing as opposed to the through traffic. This is not hard to do when you put your mind to it. To go from strode to road is the opposite. You know, we, we limit access, we limit complexity, uh, we, Basically, don't zone and don't develop that property uh, adjacent to it. You know, we we, we have that. Uh, anything that's done there be done on local streets that would pour back into the system somewhere else. I don't get too uptight about the strode to road conversion because I actually think that the unwinding of the suburban experiment is going to make that easier to do and make that kind of irrelevant. You know, if the big box stores on the edge of town become warehouses, which I think is, is happening here and going to happen in, in greater extent. If those fast food places kind of go away and atrophy, there's just not going to be the traffic and there's just not going to be the demand. And so if the access is there, it's not going to be as big a deal. Um, I just would stop adding new ones. You know, I mean to me that should be the policies like no more new accesses. Like we're not going to add any more. But the strode to street one is the one that you get the street design team involved and you start asking, you know, very localized questions about how we do this
1: hmm one more question that just came in um, about uh, uh along these lines then we'll kind of move on to something um, a different topic but Stephen just wrote in the chat he said in medium-sized rural cities slowing down drivers as they get into town from rural highways has been a huge issue in my town same same as like Stephen and i are in the same same boat um uh especially as the main road through town is a major school bus route Thoughts on effectively slowing down drivers as they transition from rural areas to urban areas—is it really? Does it go back to what you were just talking about about adding complexity?
0: Yeah, but you're so there's a there's a technical question here, and I I've got this question once on the book tour by an engineer, and I thought this is a great question because I'm silent about it in the book, and I've talked about it before, but I've I've said I, I don't have the answer, so a road moving vehicles quickly between places, a street, a platform for building wealth within a place. You don't just go 60 miles an hour and then start driving 15, Mm -hmm. right? There's a transition between the two. What does that transition look like? Mm. And my answer, the, the engineer asked me this question and I said, that is a technical body of knowledge that I feel like we need to develop as engineers here. We're not developing it now because we don't we've we've not asked the other questions we treat roads and streets the same in our design and so we don't discern a need to have a transition between the two yeah
1: there's if a we actually to you there
0: yeah if we actually got to the point of having these two discrete kind of design approaches there would need to be a transition between the two what would that look like uh, I, to me the most stark example of this is ireland i would i, would, I spent time driving through ireland which as an American is very weird because you're driving on the, the you know, wrong side of the road, <laughs> you're driving on the left, and so you're, you're already kind of, it's exhausting, you're driving in system two because it's very unnatural to be in the, the left lane. But when you would get to the city, when you would get to an urban area, uh, they would have a transition on the outskirts of town. And I remember one very, very clearly, it was very abrupt and jarring to me as a driver, you were driving along on what their version of a highway is, it'd be kind of like a rural county road for us here in Minnesota, but you're driving along at at relatively high speeds. And then all of a sudden, the curb that there would be a curb on the edge of the road. And the curb would come up a little bit. So it become a little bit more pronounced. And then it would start to shrink in. (laughs) And it would, it would, it would, so you were kind of going, driving into a funnel in a Mm -hmm. sense, it was subtle. It was not like a wall or anything, but it was enough to like prompt you to recognize that you were, you were driving in some, and the result is that as a driver, you just naturally slowed down because what happens is your margin for error is decreased. I could hit one of those curbs. And so because I have less margin for error, I automatically slow down. And so what it would do is it would like funnel you down like this and then bam, it popped back out again. When it popped back out, you were in the city. And so in a a relatively short period of time, you would go from highway speeds to urban city speeds. And I remember as soon as you got through that little area, like it was building, 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 people walking across the street, just like a chaos of Irish town. Um, And it was beautiful. Uh, To me, it would be harder to do that in the US because our highways are so much faster and our local streets are still designed for high speeds. But we're going to have to figure that out here. What does that transition look like in an American context? How do we make it work? And how do we get people from very high speeds to very low speeds? I I would love to get to where that's an operative problem to deal with. That's Mm -hmm. not the urgent problem we have now. I would love to get to the point where that is the thing we're trying to figure out.
1: Yeah. Chuck, I'm hoping maybe we can just answer one more question. And actually, I'm going to try to combine multiple questions that came in. That was about the role of technology. Um, You have a whole chapter in the book on technology uh, fads and transportation technology and fads. I think it was called something like that. But we had a couple. You With know, somebody asked kind of about new technologies around bike and pedestrian pedestrian intersections. Somebody asked if whether or not AI could be used for training self driving vehicles to test street designs. Like as you sort of survey the landscape, what are some, some technology advances that seem especially promising, and which seem like uh, trying to put put a technological band aid over a much deeper problem?
0: Yeah. I've tried to simplify that whole chapter down to this insight at low speeds. Technology provides very little value Hmm. because we're operating as humans in a human environment. And technology is not a necessary overlay to make that work. Well, we know how to make that work. Well, at high speeds technology should replace humans, but that requires us to remove all the complexity. Um, I mean, I've said right now you could have an automated vehicle drive across Nebraska like ridiculously easy and they would have no problems doing that. and if you want to ship things across the country, they could drive on our interstates and except for a few places where you have complexity in the interstate system, which I think should be removed, uh, you could you know have that those kind of deliveries happen overnight in places and I mean, imagine if you showed up in the morning and at your loading dock was the truck already backed up, driven by AI across the country, ready to deliver whatever it was that you were expecting. Um, We can make that happen tomorrow. We have the technology to do that uh, with very modest design changes. I I find that we get, um, and a lot of this is, is where the energy in our country is today. And also I think culturally, how we look at innovation and technology Um, it's a little bit like, you know, I text my neighbor and I feel stupid doing it because my neighbor lives right there. Like I can just literally like walk out the door. I text my wife when she's
1: on the other side of the house. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Like I text my wife, she's on the second, like, is that bringing us closer together or further apart? It's really not solving a problem. And I think, you know, a problem that is a pressing problem. A lot of what technology is being discussed at today is to overcome a problem that would be immediately fixed if we lowered speeds. Mm. If we designed for 15 mile an hour speed on urban streets, we would we would find technology to be as silly as texting your wife from the other room. And I'm not saying that that doesn't have value sometimes, because you know, if I'm in the middle of making dinner and she's upstairs working you know, I can't run up there. It's nice to have an intercom of what's, you know, I get it, but you're talking marginal improvements on human life, not transformational things.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's really
0: great. The transformational thing would be to get speeds down Mm -hmm. and then all the other stuff becomes kind of superfluous.
1: Well, Chuck, thanks for answering these questions. We didn't get to every one of them that came in. Um, uh, We had quite a few that came in, uh, but I, hopefully we, we, we addressed uh, a lot hopefully we addressed most of them and um uh we're just grateful that everyone could be here today uh we just want to say thanks again for being such great supporters of the book of the strong towns movement we are going to send out uh this recording to the folks who registered so um uh that was somebody had asked about that just thank you again for being here thanks for the great work that you're doing in your town exciting things are afoot um I put my email in the chat. If there's anything that we can do to help you in the work that you're doing, if you have any follow up questions for me or resources that I could send you, um, please feel free to reach out to me directly. We'd love to help however we can. And with that, we'll just go ahead and sign off. And just thanks again, everyone, for being here and for all that you're doing to to build a strong town where you live.
0: Yes, thank you so much. And I just to reiterate what John has said. You know, we're um, the, 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 the people on this call, the people in this movement have uh, invested a lot of time and energy and been building and growing this conversation. Mm-hmm. And we are, uh, as an organization, uh, getting to a, a very exciting time where I think we can even more actively than we have in the past support the efforts that are going on at the local level. Uh, we've got some things that we're working on uh, here in the last quarter of the year that we hope to, to bust out at the beginning of next year that I think will will advance, every year it feels like we can advance that ball a little bit more, um, but we're really starting to see this message get uh, to different places and then to people start doing some things that are really exciting and innovative. And, and I think 2022, we're just gonna have more of that. So thank you for thank you for being part of it. Thank you for helping us have the capacity to do it. Thank you for being part of the momentum and getting this all out there. It's, it's huge.
1: Uh- absolutely it's a it's a, it's it's an exciting time and it's i feel privileged to be able to to see it from the inside of the organization I wish folks could could see what we what we see from the inside and we do try to communicate that as best we can but just just trust us that there are so many exciting things that are happening around the u.s and canada it's it's so great so, it is. and that's and that's all you guys so thank you so much all right Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, man. Take care,
0: friend. I'll see you next week. Yep. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill... Bill, Bill, Bill. That's the story. Chuck Morone, this has been fascinating. Who oh, made it today?
1: I like you. I like your vision of the of the
0: world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah!